Please keep your Bible open there at Ezekiel 22. I want to bring you a message from the Bible I think we need as we begin a new year. Something that I think is needed, but sadly I fear is lacking in the church in the UK generally, and possibly in Hollywell, and I think also in myself. Uh, And so that makes this not a comfortable, soothing New Year message. I can't pretend that I've got that for you this morning. But I hope it's an encouraging message when you think about what the word encouraging means. Encouraging. Children, can you think what word is inside the word encouraging? Sorry, children, I failed to make you a sheet for this morning to help you follow. But I hope you'll work at listening. And the word encouraging has another word inside it. Courage. Encourage is to give you courage, to give you courage. Now, you don't need courage to sit in your armchair and drink tea. And you don't need courage to feel better about yourself. You might need help, but you don't need courage to do it. And you don't need courage, if you're a soldier, to stay in the barracks well behind the front line. What you need courage for is to fight where the battle is raging. And you don't get courage by pretending the battle isn't there and let's close our eyes to it. It's New Year. Let's pretend there's no battle on. Real encouragement is by facing up to the battle we're in, but knowing God. And I want us to try to get this from Ezekiel 22, verse 30. Just the one verse. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. I want to give you four things from Ezekiel 22, verse 30, and we're going to spend most of our time on the second one. Four things. The first one is stand in the gap. Let's get the context. God is very merciful. And he loved his people Israel, but they sinned repeatedly. But he's so patient, he kept sending them warnings and prophets and more warnings and more prophets. He wanted them to return to him, but they wouldn't. And so Ezekiel 22 tells them in that stark chapter that we've just heard that punishment is coming. And just like metals are brought into a furnace and melted, God's going to bring them into Jerusalem and it will be like a furnace and they'll be melted. And yet even then, still, after centuries of patiently waiting, God still looked for opportunity to be merciful. Verse 30, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. So picture, children, can you picture a city wall? Maybe you've seen an old castle and, or maybe you've been to somewhere like York. Anyone been to York? There's people here been to York. Yeah, and have you seen this old city walls? Uh, mostly broken down now, but picture an old city and it's got these walls around it. And it's a good job it has, because there's an army marching towards it, determined to destroy it. But it's it's got these strong walls. They're too thick to push down. They're too high to climb over. But the city has had many years of peace and has grown careless and hasn't kept the walls in good condition. And they're broken down in places. You could just walk straight through the gaps in places. 
But there's enemies coming, so quick, you better build the walls. You better get some good stone. You better get to work. Build up the walls. Get them high. Get them strong again. But you won't have time to do it all. There will still be a gap. And the enemy are coming. So you better stand in that gap and be determined to fight. And you're going to stand firm there. And you're going to do all that you can to stop the enemy getting in the walls. And that's what we have as our picture in Ezekiel 22, verse 30. But strangely here, the enemy is God. God has become the enemy of Israel because of their persistent, unrepented sin. And yet he's a strange enemy. He's a strange enemy because here he wants someone to build up the walls to protect the city. He wants someone to stand in his way and to turn him back. What's he talking about? How, how were they supposed to do it? How are we supposed to do it? Well, I'd love to look at this combination of build up the walls and stand in the gap and what it means to do both, but we haven't got time to look at both. Um, maybe you can think about that this afternoon. Uh, those who are online, maybe you could discuss that in your Zoom group afterwards. Um, someone might like to note down Jeremiah 5 verse 1 and have a look because it's a parallel that helps us understand what it means to build up the walls. Build up the walls and stand in the gap. Uh, but we've only got time for one of those this morning. So let's focus on standing in the gap. Stand in the gap, we're told in verse 30. And the language here comes from Genesis 18. There was a town called Sodom. Terribly wicked. And God said he was going to destroy it. But Abraham stood before God. Funnily enough, God actually went there and prompted Abraham to do it because he wanted someone to stand in his way. And Abraham stood in God's way to try to stop him destroying that wicked city of Sodom. How did Abraham stand in God's way? He spoke to God. He spoke to persuade him not to do so. Not just a formal prayer because someone expected him, it was maybe it was the prayer meeting. No, he pleaded and he argued with God again and again and again until God agreed, I won't destroy that town if just ten righteous people can be found in it. He stood in the gap. The language here is also similar to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, that psalm describes Israel sinning at the time of the golden calf. Children, you heard of the golden calf? The Israelites in the desert made that golden calf and they worshipped it and God was angry with them for that sin. And Psalm 106 says, verse 23, so God said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach, stood in the gap before him to keep his wrath from destroying them? How did Moses stand in the gap? Like Abraham, he prayed. And like Abraham, there was nothing casual or just because it's expected of me about his prayer. He pleaded and he argued and he gave God reasons why he oughtn't to do this. He stood in the gap. So, my first point really is simple. Will you stand in the gap? Will you pray 
like Abraham and Moses, for God's mercy on the church, on the unsaved that you mix with, on a society that's so in need. And like Abraham and Moses, will you make sure it's not just saying some prayers because you've heard in a church service that you walked to? Uh, talking about not just saying some prayers, there was a man once called E.M. Bounds. I'm not sure what, it, what the initials E.M. stand for. And he was a chaplain in the army in the American Civil War. In fact, he got captured by the enemy and made a prisoner of war. But he was also a man of prayer. And he wrote some classic books about praying. He was really into encouraging people to pray. And yet he said this. Here's a quote from him. Nothing is so feeble, so insipid, so unproductive as a little tedious praying. Are you familiar with a little tedious praying? I expect we all are, aren't we, if we're honest. I have to admit to have done a lot of little tedious praying. And Ian Brown says, how insipid, how feeble, how unproductive it is. When standing in the gap in the city walls, you can't do a little tedious sword swinging, can you? Oh, there's an enemy coming. Let's do a little tedious sword swinging. That won't get you anywhere. You can't do a little tedious fighting. Someone's told me, it's eight o'clock on a Thursday evening. Let's do a little tedious fighting. No. No, we need to, we need to stand in the gap. And to stand in the gap, you have to be serious about it. And you have to think it matters. And you have to put the effort in. That doesn't mean you need the gift of the gap. It doesn't mean you need long prayers. It does mean you need to know God through the Bible. And you need to know what things matter to him. And you need to know how he works in the world. And you need to know what sort of arguments are worth making with him. And you need to know how to plead to him to turn his face towards us. You need to know how to plead with him to give us the power that we're lacking and to turn away his anger and to pour out his mercy on sinners and stir us up with life and holiness. Now, you might be wondering, you might be thinking, but we're Christians. We're Christians. We don't need to do all that, do we? Because we've got his mercy and we've got his love and we've got the gospel and God is for us, not against us. You prayed that in your prayer a few minutes ago. Why would we need to pray like that? So, my first point was stand in the gap. My second point is it's necessary. It's necessary. Why was it needed then? Let's start back in Ezekiel 22. Why was it needed then? Because God was coming to judge Israel. Now, he hadn't scrapped his promises. He had promised that he would preserve Israel because the Messiah would come through them. He'd promised he would keep David's family safe because a king to rule forever would come through them. And he would keep those promises. But... They'd have a lot of suffering coming up and be disgraced and reduced to a tiny little group called a remnant because of their sin. And the New Testament church is very similar. Jesus said he would build his church and it will be built. And he said it would last until he returns and it will be glorious. And that's true. But it can go through a lot of trouble along the way. Revelation describes a church in Ephesus and it had left its first love and Jesus said, I'm going to remove your candlestick. In other words, you're going to shrivel up and die. 
Yes, he built his worldwide church, but it didn't guarantee the church in Ephesus would survive, and sadly it didn't. Or take, take a bigger set of churches. At one time, North Africa was the stronghold of Christianity. Flourishing churches there, but the church corrupted. They thought they'll be all right. They've got this glorious history. They've got money. They've got influence. They've got power. But they corrupted and they were not all right because Islam swept in and killed them. And the church basically died out. And Islam dominated North Africa for hundreds of years, in fact, still today. Jesus hadn't broken his promises. He's still building his worldwide church and it will be glorious. But that doesn't guarantee Hollywell or Shepshed or Ragan or the church in the UK or the church in the West. Not guaranteed. Uh, Talking about the UK and the West, God also does deal with nations. In the Old Testament, it wasn't just Israel that got judged. It was other nations. Move on to the New Testament and you find in Romans 1, It describes societies that push God out of their consciousness. They don't want to acknowledge the creator and he gives them over to sin, degrading sin. Could that be us? Could that be true here? Now, before answering that, I need to deal with our dislike of hearing this sort of thing because I know from previous experience we dislike hearing this sort of thing. It's not popular. So I want to deal with that with a couple of examples. Here's the first one. There was a time in British history when the country was flourishing, doing well. It had come out of a deep recession and the economy was growing again and it was peaceful and united and happy. But there was one fly in the ointment. There was a man in Parliament and he kept on saying we're in danger. He kept on saying there was a trouble, a terrible threat we were ignoring and we weren't prepared for the future rapidly approaching us. People didn't want to hear him. How annoying. Things are doing well. Do you know what the time was? What period, who the man was and what the danger was? It was the 1930s. The man was Winston Churchill. And he was warning about Nazi Germany. But he was an annoying, harping on scaremongerer. People didn't want to hear. But you all know now, he was right. And Ezekiel was similar and faced a similar reaction. Now, most of us probably don't like being told, look at society around us, look at the weakness of the church. It sounds like just moaning. It sounds like, oh, it's just someone looking back nostalgically to a supposed golden age in the past. No, I'm not doing that. I don't think there really was a golden age in the past. But we mustn't be like the people in the days of Winston Churchill, or more importantly, Ezekiel. Here's my second um, illustration to to try to help us, because we don't like to hear these sorts of things. We must be careful about a strength that can be pushed into a weakness. Have you discovered this? How people can have strengths which, when pushed too far, become weaknesses. Seeing the positive and emphasising reason for encouragement is a strength. It's a really good strength. It's good to have. But it becomes a weakness when it's pushed into never acknowledging a problem. So, for example, imagine it's one cold night at the beginning of January. Not hard to imagine at the moment. And all those Christmas lights on your neighbour's house spark a fire somehow in the night. 
and the roof gets blazing away. And out you rush from your house and you say, isn't that nice? It's warming my hands. We're not feeling the cold so much now. What a lovely warm fire. You're being encouraging. You're emphasising the positive. But you might get a punch on the nose because it's not very helpful, is it? Better to call the fire brigade and get your hosepipe out. You see, it's a strength can be turned, pushed into a weakness when it's pushed too far. I'm glad that Hollywell has people who emphasise the positive and work at being encouraging. Please keep it up. But we mustn't push that into closing our eyes to how our society is very much like Ezekiel chapter 22. So let's have a look at that now, just very briefly, uh, just very selectively, a look at how our society is like Ezekiel chapter 22. And so the chapter begins in verse 3 with bloodshed. They killed their children for the sake of their idols. Well, that's very outlandish, isn't it? Very different from the UK. Nobody kills their children for the sake of anything they idolise, do they here? Well, 200,000 unborn humans every year killed. Yes, there are many difficult reasons behind it and women suffering, but the basic thing is, for our idol of sex, bloodshed. The chapter moves on in verse 10 to sexual sin. Sexual sin. Do you know that some people think that since the 1960s, the boundaries of what's acceptable sexually have been pushed and pushed and pushed, but they haven't. That's wrong. No, they haven't. There's there's actually a misunderstanding of what's happened. The boundaries haven't been pushed out. The boundaries have been abolished and replaced. Replaced with a completely new revolutionary set of boundaries which are totally opposite to God's boundaries. And the Bible says this sort of thing, the bloodshed and the sexual sin, are like an angry red flashing warning light saying there is an underlying problem deeper down. Those are not the cause of the problem. They are the flashing lights saying there's a deeper problem. And the deeper problem is in the second half of verse 12. Second half of verse 12. And you have forgotten me, declares the sovereign Lord. This is the cause of the other sins. God's forgotten. Not in the absent-minded sort of forgetfulness, but in the Romans 1, push him out sort of forgetfulness. So, for example, children, you have assemblies at school, don't you? You have assemblies? Now, imagine you go back to school this week, if you do get back to school this week, and the assembly is this. For the beginning of the year, you're going to get an assembly on children. What you need in 2021 is to fear the Lord. Is that going to happen? Anyone here imagine that? That at Hollywell and Woodbrook Vale and wherever uh, other schools... There are going to be assemblies on how children must fear the Lord. <laughs> well, it's not going to happen, is it? You just, that's just laughable, that idea. It doesn't happen. But, but the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. How, how can children be prepared for life if a school thinks that the fear of the Lord is just a bad Victorian joke? Do you see, our society is founded on the idea that God is not there. He is pushed out. What a disaster. 
What a disaster when we're in a situation where 70,000 people have died from COVID-19 and the only one who can give life is pushed out. And the thought that Jesus is the one we need is so far from people's thoughts. And even in a pandemic that shows up we can't manage, we think we'll manage without God. Well, we either think we'll manage without God or we despair because it's just all going wrong. Well, what we don't do is say, God, we need you. So many more parallels with Ezekiel 22. Here's just one more. Verse 26 moves on to the religious, the priests, the religious leaders. And even they teach that there is no difference between the unclean and the clean. How true of so many churches. No difference between right and wrong, righteousness and sin. But before this starts to sound like looking down on everyone out there, the point of this is for us to take our responsibility for it. It's our society. It's our country. And yes, you might think, well, those churches that are like that, they're nothing to do with us. But the unbelievers don't think that. They look at them and they think that's Christianity. That represents Jesus. And so are our prayer meetings full of the sound of people standing in the gap? Does God hear from us that we've taken in the need and we love our neighbours who are spoilt by sin and we care about the honour of the Lord Jesus and so we're going to bring this to him and we're going to stand in the gap and say, God, we need you to do something about it. What is the worst thing going on in in chapter 22? What is the lowest point in Ezekiel 22? It's pretty clear from the way it's written that it's not verse 3, the bloodshed. It's not verse 10, the sexual sin. The lowest point is verse 30. That God looks among the believers. Is there anyone standing up about this? Is there anyone standing in his way about it? And he finds none. And you say, what? They're in a society where people sacrifice children to idols and they are not fasting and down on their knees. What are they playing at? And that turns right back on us. The worst sign in our society isn't out there. It's in here. It's in here if we are not lovingly, earnestly, pleading with God for those around us and for the state of the church and the nation. Do we see how the image of God is abused all around us and the Son of God is dishonoured all around us and do we stand in the gap? Stand in the gap. It's necessary. Thirdly, it's worth it. It's worth it. Verse 30 is an amazing verse. It is an encouraging verse. I hope you will get encouragement from it because look at the first two words. I looked. God had been patiently waiting and warning these people for so long about their sin. But even now he's still looking. He's still looking. He's earnestly searching. Could I just find someone to turn away the wrath that must come on this sin? But, well, is there someone who will deflect it? God is not keen on judging. He's keen on love. He's keen on pouring out mercy. He's keen on kindness and gentleness. 
The funny thing is, this God who loves mercy uses humans in the process of giving his mercy. I'm not fully sure why he does it that way. I I suspect it's because he wants to treat us as those who are responsible because we're the image of God. And so he looks for someone who'll get in his way. And what would be the result? Verse 30. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. Prayer makes a difference. So that I would not have to destroy it. If they pray like that, it will make a difference. Verse 30. But I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume. Notice the so, so I will. Lack of prayer makes a difference. Some people say prayer doesn't change things, it changes us. Well, it does change us, but it does more than change us. I was in a ministers meeting once, so I've got to be careful because Simon was in it as well. (laughs) And uh, we were talking about prayer. And... uh, because we're ministers and part of our job is to pray. And we were talking about reasons why we should do this. And some people said about how it changes us. And some people said about how it focuses us on on the right things. And some people said about how it reminds us of the needs there are in the congregation. And after a while, I thought, there's something missing here. And I said, isn't there something we haven't said? Shouldn't we be praying because it gets God to act? And it provokes God to take action. And if we don't believe that, we might as well close up this meeting and go and find another job. Because prayer makes a difference. It's worth it. Stand in the gap. It's necessary. It's worth it. And finally, it's possible. It's possible. Now you might think, that sounds like a bit of an anticlimax. That sounds like coming downhill. You've gone from it's worth it to it's possible. But no, this I've saved the best one till now for a reason. Actually, I think the best news is here that it's possible. When you think about this, how can we stand in the gap? How can we speak to the creator? How can we expect him to take the slightest notice of us? What's the answer? Well, let me try to develop the answer for you. Our sin calls on God to be our enemy. Our sin calls on God to come marching against us. Our sin calls on God to pour out his wrath on us and destroy us. Was there anyone who could stand in the gap for us? Who could turn away the judgment we deserve? To use the language of verse 30, God looked for a man. But the only way he could find a man who would do it was for his son to become that man. And God the son looked and he saw the state of the world. And he watched people rejecting God. And he wept over the havoc that we cause. And he was was repulsed by our uncleanness and appalled by our rebellion. And he didn't close his eyes to it. And he didn't say, that's not a very nice thing to think about for a New Year's message. And he didn't turn away. So he said, come on, I'm just enjoying some time with my father here. No, he came down to this earth. And he stood in the gap. And he stretched out his arms as his cross filled that gap. And it's as if he was saying to his father, you're not going to get them, get to them past me. And so verse 31 happened to him. He stood in that gap 
And so God poured out all his wrath on him and consumed him with his fiery anger, bringing down on his own head all that we have done. He stood in the gap and so we are safe. Not safe surrounded by walls, safe surrounded by the arms of Jesus. And the care of this loving God who is not marching against us, no. And he's not pouring out his wrath on us, no. He's doing what he loves to do, pouring out his kindness, his gentleness, his compassion on us. Jesus stood in the gap for us. So God isn't our enemy, he's our father. And he's a father who loves to hear from his children. What? This week, this year, this day, what is he going to hear from you?